Hi, everyone. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a very special episode today because it is a topic that we haven't really addressed directly. And it comes up with a lot of questions that we get from a lot of our listeners, a lot of our readers who happen to be in ministry, whether they're pastors or in ministry in other settings. And they're very frustrated with the state of affairs. They're very frustrated with maybe the community that they're in, the anti-libertarian or maybe pro-government sort of stance that a lot of people take in churches because, you know, hey, we live in America and that tends to be something that's problematic from time to time. And also because, actually, I have two guests on. I'm going to introduce them here in a second. These particular guests are actually leading a decentralized network. And of course, anytime, you've probably already clicked on the title to listen to this episode because of the word decentralized, because it's a very important way of doing all kinds of things. Decentralized money, decentralized almost everything in the mind of a libertarian. And so we're going to talk about decentralized pastoring or the decentralized pastors network. So I have two guys on with me here. I have Matt Schneider and Neil Karsten, and they are going to talk about with us their Decentralized Pastors Network. So, hey guys, thanks for joining me. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So for the sake of uh, your voices are somewhat different, so I'm going to, you know, at least audibly, because we're not recording this on video, so no one's going to be able to tell who's speaking. So I'm going to make it easy for our listeners to start with one of you with your backgrounds. Before I get to that, I want to just sort of quote something that you have on the beginning of your homepage, which is the Barna study that about 38% of pastors would have wanted to quit or maybe did perhaps quit in the previous year. I think that was sort of the question. That's a pretty high percentage. And it is indicative of a kind of problem that is, I don't know if there's a whole lot of people, maybe with COVID people started answering more honestly, but like, I don't know of anybody in any particular industry who would Almost, uh, you know, two fifths of them are like, "Hey, yeah, right. I'd, I'd rather quit." I mean, everybody wants more wa- you know, higher wages People or whatever. But that's a pretty troubling restaurant, perhaps. Yeah, yes. it's really crazy. So there's a unique stress that pastors have. There's a unique, yeah. Well, we'll talk about all the details here. But Neil, what I want to do is have you tell your story. Just tell us a little bit of who you are. Give us a few minutes of your backstory, and then we'll go to Matt. Yeah, Neil Karsten, and I grew up here in West Michigan met Jesus actually when I was in college. And so this is the super short version. From that, Lord just really captured my heart. And I was like, okay, hey, what do we do with this? And it feels like there's kind of a couple of options if this is going to be like what you go do. Is you can become a missionary, you can become a pastor. 
And so I ended up going to seminary. I became a pastor. And it was while I was being a pastor that me and one of my best friends, we were just really convicted. Hey, we know how to fill up these buildings. We know what it's going to take to keep them full. But we were convicted that as we're reading the scriptures, are we actually seeing in the scriptures what we're seeing as we're trying to be the church in these buildings and such like that? And don't get me wrong. I mean, we were smart enough to try to pat ourselves on the back and tell ourselves we were doing a good job. But I think the Holy Spirit was really just convicting us. Like he was calling us for something so much more. Mm. And so that for us was really wanting to see the priesthood of all believers really lived out. And so obviously when you come into a church, largely you come, you're a passive participant in that. But then you have the main leaders who are up front doing a lot of the a lot of the main leadership work, all those things. But when you read the scriptures, you see it's an all hands on deck sort of mentality. There's a lot of actual authority given to the individual members of the body to go out, to share the gospel, to be in service to one another, to be stewarding the work that's going on. And we were like, how do we live into this? So for us, then we just said, let's start doing it in my living room. So we opened up my living room, had no clue what this was going to look like. And we began trying to be the church in just a really simple way. And nobody helping us, nobody coaching us. This is us building the plane as we're flying it. So we do that for a while. And we're like, man, this is really good. This is refreshing. And then people start inviting other people to come be a part. And before we knew it, we ended up starting now what we jokingly call a mega house church. You know, we had 60 people in my living room. But in that, a lot of people would say, whoa, that's so amazing. But what we realized is even with that many people, we had lost the very thing we are hoping to attain. And so in that, then basically we ended up getting some training, some coaching from people who had done this even around the world of being intentionally decentralized. And they gave us some tools in the tool belt of what does that look like? And we've been pressing into that ever since then, ourselves being the church in a simple way, but going out, making disciples, teaching Mm. them how do they do the same thing in their homes, and then seeing that actually multiply as disciples are making disciples and as simple churches are making simple churches. So there's the short version of that. Cool. So Matt, I'll let you tell your story, and then I have some actual follow-up questions for for both of you there. Yeah, so... I came to faith when I was in my mid-20s. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, now living in Massachusetts. That's not where I'm originally from, but I came to faith kind of against all odds, you know, just from a, a secular background, often a skeptical sort of background in terms of family and the culture that I was raised in. But when I came to faith, I told the woman who's now my wife, she was a friend. I think I'm a Christian now. And I said, I don't know if it was that conversation or shortly thereafter, by coming to faith, I said, I think I need to be something like an evangelist or missionary to my own people. And what I meant was reaching secular, skeptical Americans. Because what I recognized through seven years of kind of seeking throughout my relationship with her, what I recognized was that the church was doing a really bad job reaching people like me. Mm. And I didn't know what to do. She wasn't really well equipped on on how to reach the lost. And so that was 15 years ago. And I've been pursuing that path ever since. 
did she sort of come to faith alongside you, or was she already no, a Christian? No, before she already was a Christian. So she came to faith when she was twelve. Yeah, and you know we had known each other for about nine years at that point. I mean, sorry, seven years at that point. And okay, so she was instrumental in me coming to faith, but it wasn't like I'm just a Christian now. There was this like impulse, like I need to share this with my people, meaning Americans, and trying to pursue that path of like being a missionary to my own people. Naturally, the people I went to was the church. Figure that out, but they kind of didn't really know what to do with me. It was go the typical route, go to seminary, become a pastor. And I was, I was a pastor for several years, but a few years ago, I just really was like, if I'm being honest with myself, I'm not filling that calling of Mm. reaching the lost. Most of the people that are coming to our church, if we're growing are Christians who are moving around from one church to another, maybe they're moving from out of town, but often we're just shuffling local Christians and I was like, and I, I mean, we have seen some people come to faith through our work, but, but not a lot. And honestly, like, I don't really know what to do mm. <laughs> to reach them. And so I kind of went back to that original question of what would it be like to be a missionary? But rather than going overseas, being a missionary to North Americans, what can I learn from the church overseas where it's thriving and often in places where it's very difficult? to be a believer, like say in the Middle East or in China or Southeast Asia, can I humble myself and learn from the church overseas because they're reaching a lot of people often against great odds, uh, tapping into something that I'm not, that I should be doing here and have learned from movements that are overseas and tried to implement it, have been trying to implement what I've been learning the last three years here in the States and along that path, decided I needed to step out of formal pastoral ministry and just focus on multiplying disciples and not Mm. managing an institution. Yeah. So both of you actually mentioned, and it, it seems like it's part of the DNA of the Decentralized Pastors Network, that you want to learn from those doing church overseas. And when I was in seminary, it was about 15 Oh my gosh, 15 to 20 years ago, goodness. Um, (laughs) I remember that being sort of the trend that the church in America was generally, at least those on the forefront of, you know, pushing change in churches were realizing that there was a lot that foreign church leaders and not like white missionaries who are over in doing foreign church. We're talking about like indigenous sort of stuff. They had a lot to teach those of us in America evangelical churches, especially what church could look like. So what are some, and I'll let either of you take this, like what is it that appealed to you about learning from those overseas? And are there any particular items or particular things that you learned that you're already starting to apply? Yeah, I'll I'll start. You can pick up. And actually, Neil has been at this a little bit longer than me and, and knows some of these people better than I do. But I picked up a book called Church Planting Movements by a guy named David Garrison that was published in the early 2000s. I picked this up several years ago. And what that book describes is movements that are happening overseas that really got started, first of all, in places like India and China in the 1990s, where whole communities 
are coming to faith and the thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, even into the millions where people are coming to faith, whole families, whole communities, whole people groups or large portion of people groups, Mm. again, in places where the church is often persecuted, like China. And, you know, just this rapid multiplication and there is depth. It's not shallow. People often think where things are moving quickly, it must be shallow. But there's great depth because people are even willing to die for their faith. Someone's willing to die for their faith. There's a lot of depth there. And I just was like, man, this is so different than what I'm experiencing, where we're going to celebrate if in our church a few adults are coming to faith and being baptized. You know, that would be a huge accomplishment. And here these guys are seeing dozens, if not hundreds of churches planted on an annual basis. A lot of people come into faith and they're being persecuted and they're sticking with it. And actually that persecution is often fueling the fire. And Mm -hmm. I just had this burning desire in me, like, is this happening here in the United States? Is anyone doing anything like this? And if not, God, I avail myself to you. (laughs) Yeah. And basically what they're doing is they're just living out what they're seeing in the Bible. They're just reading, say, the book of Acts and trusting that the same God can move today Mm -hmm. in the same ways here. And people often say, well, that's, you know, over there. But in the West, it couldn't happen that way. And I'm just saying, no, I think your vision of what God can do is too small. I want to see it happen here as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think something I'd, I'd add into that is us as Westerners and having grown up maybe in a church culture in church background ourselves, such like that, like we don't even think of how we are being the church anymore. We're just thinking of like, this is church to us. You know, we go to this building, the pastors up front helping lead and steward a lot of these things. And then we have this luxury, and I put that in air quotes, you know, to try to figure out which one of these churches do we like best. For us, a lot of these brothers and sisters overseas being in persecuted areas, they don't even have the consideration of those things. They are forced to be the church in a decentralized way. There isn't the opportunity to even be nearly as centralized. But from that, it breeds high empowerment. It breeds high ownership. And the people who are going to be involved, they have really count the cost of what does it mean to be a Christian. So the rapid then spread of the gospel going from village to village to village, such like that, actually takes place very naturally because it truly is an empowering endeavor, but it's also fueled by people who are just, they're in. They're not like sitting there kind of lukewarm because there's no added benefit to them to being lukewarm. So now for us though, as Westerners, the interesting thing is us living into being the church in a much more decentralized way. People that we walk with and are coaching, encouraging, teaching them to do the same, they're having to really reframe a paradigm of what it means to be the church. And so Mm. us getting to walk with them, it's all founded on the same gospel that Jesus Christ came. He died for us who are sinners. He was resurrected with faith in that gives us the salvation that, that we all need. But now from there, as we're going out and we're being faithful, we're trying to be disciples ourselves, growing into his image, but simultaneously we're going out and we're trying to make disciples. 
the question then becomes is, as we're doing that work, what does it look like to come together to be the church? What mm-hmm. does it look like to see the priesthood of all believers truly rise up? And what does it look like for us to see this empowered in such a way so that wider areas can truly be reached? Mm. And so these are some of the things that we're pressing into. And there's others who are pressing into this more and more now within the Western context. Yeah. So we've gone 15 or so minutes into this conversation and I've failed to actually ask you to explain what the Decentralized Pastors Network actually is. but it's interesting that we can lead up to like your story and you're like alluding to some of these things that you're doing. So tell us what the Decentralized Pastors Network is. And then I I have a follow-up on what you guys mean by decentralized because I think that might be, who knows, it might be confusing for some people. Maybe it makes absolute perfect sense. So I'll let you uh, introduce it. So we've been working on developing a project for about the last year and a half that we've just made public. And it's called Pastor to Pioneer. So we actually have a website, pastortopioneer.com. What we're doing with that project is working with guys who are currently pastors or maybe formerly pastors, guys or gals. And it could be ministry leaders. It doesn't necessarily need to be like ordained pastors. So that's kind of our target audience. Mm-hmm. As you said, that Barna report came out last year. Where actually, the, here's the interesting thing about that Barner report. This sort of gets under the skin of what we were doing. It sort of explained why we wanted to create this project. But the report came out after we were developing it. So in early 2021, January, they asked a question in this research study. And 21% in January of 2021 of pastors had considered quitting in the last year. And then they asked the same question at the end of the year in December of 2021, and it shot up to 38%. And the interesting thing on that is they drill down a little bit deeper and they do age ranges. And it was like younger pastors kind of in their, I don't know what it was, like 20s to 40s or something. It was like something like 43% of those guys had considered quitting in the last year. Hmm. And some of them are wanting to quit because they're in toxic situations and COVID highlighted that. But there are a lot of guys who are like, man, I went into ministry because I love God and I want to help people know him and follow Jesus. And now I'm sitting in budget meetings all day and I'm managing a nonprofit organization. Very little of my work, maybe none of it looks like making disciples who make disciples. Hmm. Sure, I get to preach. I do some pastoral care stuff. But I'm not really getting much time and I'm not really, I don't even really know what to do (laughs) to make disciples. I don't even know how to equip my people how to make disciples. These are some of the questions that I was asked. I wasn't really trained very well in this stuff. And so rather than seeing those guys just quit and go get a job at Home Depot, we want to catch them and say, like, you're asking some of the right questions and we've kind of, we're a step or two ahead of you. We're really trying to figure out how to make disciples and multiply with depth and see our cities transformed. And we want to help you do that as well. And so we're helping them walk through a paradigm shift of kind of an institutional model of church that we're all familiar with to something else that looks more like what we're seeing in the New Mm -hmm. Testament. And we're coaching them because 
it's not just go through a class. Like it requires a relationship of being with other people who've done this before asking the same questions to kind of help you get to where you, you need to be or want to be. What were some of the questions that, I mean, are these questions regarding like their value as pastors? Was it theological questioning slash deconstruction type stuff? Like what were some of the things that they were going through that you identified as needing mentorship or discipleship or encouragement or whatever? Yeah, we really noticed that pastors have been getting hit by three major things. There are three things that speak loudly to them. For one, pastors should be in the Word. They should be reading the Word. And when they read the Word and they're seeing what they see in the Word and then they compare it to what they're experiencing or doing, they're just like, man, there's a disconnect here. And so that's something that's kind of gnawing at them. They're knowing like I'm reading this stuff over here, but what I'm doing over here, they just don't seem to line up one for one. Yes, there's pieces that do go together, but there's some major pieces that don't. So that's one of the major things is the word is one of the convicting points. The other part is just the metrics of the church. Like if we think about the United States, there's 330 million people. And you might have some churches that, oh, look, our church grew, but by and large, the metrics of what's happening throughout the church right now are on steep decline. And I'm not even talking about just numerical metrics. I'm also talking about theological metrics, like of how solid our theology is. And so one of the things that I think is really not at pastors as well is just knowing there is a trend happening in our culture right now and them feeling like I'm truly powerless in how I am doing this to do much about it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the third part is just their own experiences. Pastors, we kind of joke around that pastors are their own people group, even though their churches might look a little bit different here or there. You might have high liturgical or much more contemporary, whatever, you know. But the experiences that a lot of pastors have walked through have been extremely similar. So many pastors have had the same things, them hard questions that they've wondered, all that sort of stuff. And so. We know that those pastors are out there. We know that they're wondering, man, like, is there a way for what I'm doing to actually line up more so with the word? Mm-hmm. That's the question that I had. That's the thing that Matt was wrestling with. We got like a dozen plus others of us who we're walking with and others that they're walking with as well, who have all felt these same things. So our big question has been, man, how do we find these pastors? How do we empower them to be the church? Much more of what we see throughout the book of Acts and say, our brothers and sisters overseas are doing this. We can actually do this here as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, everyone. If you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model, where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer, you know, free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. 
we actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. So the word decentralized, maybe it means somewhat different things to different people when they think of it. Now, I come from a Protestant tradition. And with respect to Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, even Anglican, I'm decentralized. I don't have, you know, especially if I grew up Baptist. Baptists are probably the most decentralized, well, maybe not Southern Baptist, but like independent Baptist, which is sort of the tradition that I started in, would say that they are decentralized, that their churches aren't beholden to something above them in the same way that a libertarian might say, hey, we want to be decentralized as a society so that there's no concentrated power at the top. There's no pope. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on what this nature being decentralized means in our context because I think it's possible that maybe it's just me, okay, and our listeners are a lot smarter than I am. I kind of wonder, like, what what is decentralized about the nature of what you're doing? Yeah, I, th- I think sharing kind of a vision for what the church looks like in the city would be helpful. And Neil's yeah. the better one for describing that than me. Yeah. So here's how this is being lived out for us. And then this is what those around us were encouraging them to live in as something similar. And so like in the book of Acts, of course, we see them being the church, not identified by this brand or this building or this organization, but instead the church, of course, is who we are. But now they were being the church throughout the city from house to house. So as we're living this out, I think it's always important to to point out to people that the call from Jesus, first and foremost, wasn't go and plant simple churches or house churches or whatever people want to call them. It was first and foremost, go out and make disciples. Okay. But as you make disciples, they come together to be the church. And that's where then like throughout the city here, we have a decentralized network of simple churches that we have walked with people in these simple churches in like discipling relationships And we have taught them how to be the church in a simple way in their home and from house to house throughout the city. Now, we have various things that might go on from time to time, like different prayer things that are here or there. Like we have prayer at my house on Wednesday mornings. People from eight different house churches might show up to be a part of that prayer time. We might have a worship night that pops up here. And and this is where we are learning to be the church throughout the city. Now, for us, as this grows, we're out there just being generous with the gospel. We're being generous with Jesus. We find an individual who has a desire to learn more what it means to follow Jesus, to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. We come alongside that person, walk with them, teach them. And this is where I would say in a holistic way of what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? This person then has their own network of people. We would use the word oikos. Mm -hmm. And we would encourage him or her to say, hey, gather some of those people around you together and we will come and teach you how to do the same things we're doing in our home. We will teach you how to do those things in your house. Mm -hmm. And so throughout like West Michigan here, we've gotten to see that just continually happen. But it's highly empowering in that sense. So for us, it's not centralized in the sense of if somebody goes and leads somebody to Jesus, we don't tell them, oh, you need to bring them back to me and then I will baptize that person. No, we say, hey, praise the Lord. You led him to the Lord. 
but we teach that person faithfully what to look for before baptism, what questions to even ask them to check with them on, and then empower them to actually go baptize that person. Hmm. So now for us, we see this network where we are connected together relationally from house to house, from those simple churches. And from time to time, yeah, we might have some times that we get together for various things. But then as well, at like what we would call more of the city level, we actually see leaders begin to emerge. In the scriptures, of course, you have elders, you have overseers. So for us, like within the city that I live in now, we've actually seen elders emerge and we've laid hands on elders over this decentralized network of simple churches. But then the other crazy piece with this, and this is just what's beautiful, is as this happens, embers shoot out of the work that's happening in the city. And we make connections in another city and we're discipling, walking with some of those people. Mm -hmm. They start doing the same thing. Our goal in that is not to bring them under like our umbrella or under our brand or whatever you want to call it. Instead, it's to empower them to do likewise where they're at. So you are ultimately helping them to be the church, not only in their home, but also be their church within their city from house to house. But the goal isn't to create some denomination now. It's actually to give them autonomy. Mm. And so that's where there might be little bits of different flavors of like what we're doing here in West Michigan down the road. It might look a little bit different than what Matt is doing over in the Massachusetts area and other people who are coaching who are doing the same. So if one of your members, I don't even know how to say it now with with all of that Precursor there, one of your parishioners, maybe it's even a more formal. Well, they're right? a member <laughs> of the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. So for one of them, if somebody said to them, "Hey, do you go to church?" What are they saying? Yeah, this happens <laughs> that, to us. All are you the a time. church person? All you yeah. Know, like, this yeah. happened to me yesterday. Do you have you guys have like a worship service, right? And I said, I mean, we don't call it a service, but we gather with intentionality every week with the folks that we do church with. So right now, like it's pretty small because I just moved to the city that I'm in a year ago. So the group that I'm with is, I don't know, there's like 10 of us on Sunday, but we've got several other groups in our area. And we also would consider each other church, even though on Sunday or Saturday, we're gathering with a different house church, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So that's kind of that city vision that Neil was sharing there. So it's not about going to church. It's about being the church. Mm -hmm. The church means people. It's a gathering of people. It doesn't mean a particular denomination or institution or building. And I think that's where that decentralization comes in. I would say that actually the more decentralized denominations that you alluded to still have a a degree of centralization in that there's a certain denomination institutionally branded that has limitations often in who can and who cannot do certain things. Even the most stripped down low church versions sometimes still have that. And so the joke might be like, well, you know, 10% of the people really do 90% of the work or 20% do 80% of the work or whatever. Whereas most of the people coming might be kind of consuming what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But we want to see 100% of the people be empowered to do 100% of the work. And so the elders that Neil talked about that we appoint, 
don't necessarily get paid to do it or are professionals. They're just part of the body who've risen up as leaders and we're acknowledging that and laying hands on them and appointing them to be elders to steward mm-hmm. the work in, in that city or region. But they might have a kind of normal job like everybody else, you know? They're just yeah. parents. They're parents, they're fathers to the network. If that makes sense. What does a typical gathering look like? I mean, maybe you could just share what you guys do. You know, let's say yeah. you gather on Sunday morning, Saturday night, whenever. What does that look like from group to group? That's a great question. Yeah, for us, you know, we meet on Sunday mornings. And so we get together about 9.30 in the morning. And we have this time. It's just kind of like general fellowship. We show up with our families, got a bunch of kids. The kids are kind of running around and playing. And we're just kind of catching up. Now, what's awesome for us is... With us, we've been at this for years now, so we're not necessarily new to this. But a lot of the conversations then tend to just gravitate towards general kingdom things. So it's catching up, but it's catching up with intention to it. And in there as well, we spend typically a little bit of time looking back on the things that the Lord maybe called us to from the previous week. This is going to make sense in just a little bit. But of really asking each other, like, hey, the Lord laid this on my heart last week as we were worshiping together, gathering together. And then we'll touch base with one another to say, how did it go living into that this week? So we'll go around and answer some of those things from what the Lord laid on our hearts the previous week. For us, we spend some time just worshiping and such as well. That worship is not always polished. And people within like the house churches do worship in all different ways. Sometimes it's acapella, it might have a hymn book. Sometimes it's utilizing a YouTube and some stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody plays some instruments, praise the Lord, utilize those things. And so we spend some of that time just catching up, looking back, worshiping together. And then we spend some time in the word together. This is what we would call like the look up portion. And so that time in the word now is where we pick a passage like, this past Sunday for us, we just got done going through 1 Corinthians. So as our house church, we went through all of 1 Corinthians. And this is a general encouragement for us with the house churches is, of course, utilize the scriptures and try to actually go through chunks of the scriptures. So you're not just gravitating towards the pieces that you like and you're skipping the pieces you don't like. But we'll read the scriptures and then we utilize something called much more like discovery Bible study in that. So we ask questions that are then basically bringing out the text. I was actually going to ask you if you'd heard of that. That's really great that you brought that up. Yeah. And so we don't have one person who's then like, hey, I have the sermon for this week. If somebody, but here's a caveat to that. If somebody does have like a word that's on their heart or something that they feel like, hey guys, this is just, this is burning in me to come and to bring. That's something we'd be like, praise the Lord. Let's hear it. You know, but we utilize that discovery Bible study to really dive into the word together. We ask questions. Hey, what stood out to you from this passage? What challenged you from this passage? Mm -hmm. What does this teach us about God? And what does this teach us about us as people? Yeah. So that's like the look up portion. And then the look forward portion is where we spend some time and really pray. And we're just asking God, we're listening to God. We're saying, God, how are you calling me to obey what we just read? God, is there anybody you're calling me to share something I just learned or something that you stood out to me, Lord? Is there anything you want me to, anybody you want me to share that with? And then the other part is, is there anybody you want me to share your good news with or my story with? 
and we'll listen. Those are the things then that we share with one another within like the simple church and we'll touch base on those next week. Yeah. If that makes sense. I, yeah, no. I went through that really fast. Let me tell but. a quick story from last Sunday just to put some meat on the bones there with that. We use the same format for our house church here. A woman in our gathering said there's someone back where she's from like an hour away or so. I just feel like God's telling me I need to reach out to her. I feel like she's actually dabbling with some like new age witchcraft kind of stuff. And I feel like God's you know, prompting me to ha- try to have a conversation and reach out to her. I really don't want to. I don't like talking on the phone, but I feel like I need to do this. Hmm. And so, you know, she's just an ordinary person. And this is how we're empowering and activating the priesthood of all believers through behaving this way where we're giving her space for that in our church gathering. And then she's going out and doing it. And, you know, I should probably text her this week and say like, have you been able to do that? How's it going? Praying for you, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I think the nature of gathering together is something that a lot of people value. And there is a, I think there's a tendency for us to do what you, you didn't use the word shop around, but you said it was a luxury that we get to sort of decide whether or not a church works for us. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to a service, I'm going to go try this out. or We're going to go find a new church. And, And there's certainly nothing wrong with realizing that you might not be in the right community. Or if let's say your church is getting really, really large and you feel like you would rather be in a smaller community. I'm sure there's, you know, there's good reasons to move on from community if you're not literally just like a church hopper, right? But people do value being part of a community. And your Discovery Bible Study method, is, as much as I'm familiar with it, it really does lend itself to maintaining accountability to one another. Yeah. And it's not just accountability in the old, like, like when I was in college, we'd find an accountability partner. We'd make sure exactly. we didn't, we'd make sure we didn't sin. It was more like, it was like you one know, sin in particular. Yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, make sure we didn't sin. Uh, it's more like, how have you utilized your gifts to bless others and, and things in that Correct. sort of more positive direction? Not that it's okay to be like, you know, have accountability in the other way. I don't mean it that way, but it's very useful. And I have found it having done it myself for about two years now, slowly over time, it sort of draws you into a way of expecting that there is some other community there. It's not just this general, at least in my experience, it's not just this general like, oh yeah, okay, I know that if I stray the church, the body of the, you know, my church, my formal church is responsible for bringing me back or whatever. It's more like, I'm actually going to look at these people in the eye. We're going to share a meal together and we're going to open up the scriptures together and they're going to ask me, <laughs> did you did you stay committed to what you said you were going to do in the previous two weeks or whatever? In our case, it's every two weeks for what we do. So well, that's really cool that, that you guys are practicing something that I'm actually familiar with. We didn't even know that before we began. That's really great. <laughs> <laughs> that's sweet. Well, and that's what we're talking about in terms of the movements overseas. Discovery Bible Study really was generated out of a lot of those efforts in Asia, South Asia in the 1990s. And it's only been, I'd say, in the last decade or so that Americans are really beginning to learn about it and start using it. And when you first hear what Neil just described, like we're going to read a passage, retell it. What does it teach us about God? Was it, well, what do you like? What do you challenged by what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about people? And you think, is that it? There's got to be more here. 
But just doing mm-hmm. that process, I've had life-changing conversations where people discover tons from the word, often even children having really profound insights. Yeah. And then, as you say, coming back and holding each other lovingly accountable and each other, not just me pointing my finger at you, but we're all lovingly holding each other accountable to what we're hearing from the Lord and what we've just read Yeah, and, and doing those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. The um, something I just thought of is like for people who are probably more inclined to like low church ways of doing church, this is like liturgy for low church people. Because it's it's very much a like a routine that you get into, and that's a really I I would say is a really important aspect to to doing church. Yeah, it's been unique for us because having practiced this for years now and like living into some of these rhythms, you know, when people get started in it, they feel like this is how you have to do it. But then as you continue to live into it, you start to realize, oh, there's a lot of freedom, and that's where. My encouragement to people is, yeah, it's going to be practices that you're not used to as you're living into this. But as you get used to it, it's almost like you can take the training wheels off the bike a little bit and you can start to like yeah. really experience more and more. What does it look like to truly be the church? So by the grace of God, yeah, we're getting to see that, you know, throughout our city and in other cities around us. We truly believe that the emergence of much more decentralized networks of simple churches are going to become way more commonplace in the Mm -hmm. North American context. It's already at the forefront of many leaders, pastors' minds, but they're just beginning to try to really figure out how do we live into this? The general tendency or trend in the U.S. or even just in Western civilization lately has been towards centralization. Mm-hmm. We have become sort of conditioned to believe that if we can come up with maybe a system or an organization or a structure and, you know, sort of apply that structure and not necessarily engineer from the top down, but usually it's out of a sense of like, we just want to have something relatively organized so that we can sort of say, this is who we are and this is exactly what mm-hmm. we do. And there is a, it is kind of a branding bias. Like it's a bias toward needing to be branded and to sort of be perceived as a, you know, as a certain way of being or a way of doing things. And so I think that's infiltrated into the church. You have the, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we had a huge trend to have like, we call them seeker churches, mega churches. And of course, you're going to have large churches if anywhere you're in a city, right? Mm -hmm. But there have been also movements that are sort of counter to that yours, of course, being one of them that is saying, you know, this isn't the only way to do church and this may not be the most authentic way of doing church. I would say those sorts of gatherings have their place. There's nothing wrong with gathering with 30,000 other people in a stadium or maybe 5,000 other people on a, on a, not random, on a regular Sunday morning service. But that oikos word that you used before, it actually happens at my church that I attend, we make a big deal out of that word, oikos. Who are the people that are in your sphere of influence and how are you influencing them and pushing everybody to press into that rather than just being recipients of the teaching on Sunday morning or just being like, hey, get childcare on Sunday morning and you also get to hear a sermon while you let your kids be taken care of by someone else for an hour and a half. But what you're doing, it seems, is a very attractive alternative, not just because it's a new luxury place to shop, right? Like it's not just one of the, Mm -hmm. it's not just a new brand, although 
one could probably spin it that way, I suppose. And mm-hmm. it's not even new, right? Like if we're looking to mm-hmm. the book of Acts, it's very attractive because centralization is tending toward corruption, scandal, distrust. I mean, there have been, I mean, in the past five years, there have been so many <laughs> stories yeah. of Christian leaders yes, either Robbie falling Zacharias. or failing. And they're not even all, they're not even all the same nature. Whereas, you know, in the 80s and 90s, the scandals were all sexual in nature. Yep. And of course, Robbie Zacharias happens to be one of the more recent ones, but like some of them are financial. Some of them are like real estate dealings yep. that were really shady, legal, but sort of not becoming of a Christian, you know. And I can think of places in at least two time zones that that happened, you know, in the past five years. And, you know, you also have the Mars Hill thing, uh, what's his name? Absolutely. That podcast yeah. is super popular. You're right. That's not yeah. sexual, but it's a concentration of power in yeah. one man's hands. Yeah, the Mark Driscoll scenario there. For those listening who haven't listened to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, uh, I just recently finished it actually. Worth diving into. And I don't think you guys would ever say that there's never going to ever be a scandal in the type of situation that you're in because scandals can happen at every level, right? I mean, you know. (laughs) Exactly right. But the reason that people are geared toward a new way, at least a new way for American churches, typically, of doing and being church is that there is an authenticity to the smaller groups. You actually get to know the people that you're ministering to, that those who are ministering to you, you're ministering to each other. and just like in politics, centralization tends toward corruption. And this is not a foolproof way of preventing scandal, but it's definitely yeah. in the opposite direction of centralization. I think that's that's a pretty positive trend. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up. I always tell people, like, I'm not being the church in this sort of a way because it's easier. Actually, this for me has been way harder. Very much against the grain. Exactly. And it's way messier. Because the things that are like the sin stuff can't stay hidden as long. And so typically it gets revealed and then you're forced to deal with it. And so it's been unique for us. I mean, me having been a pastor previously and now in a centralized way and now helping to steward some of this work in a decentralized way, we've gotten the the honor to walk in some really hard situations in the decentralized way that I don't think ever would have surfaced hmm. in the centralized way. And so I never want to tell people, oh, this is some easy way to do this and you just plug this in and all of a sudden all these awesome things are going to happen. No, I'm like, actually, this is life on life. This hmm. is relationships. This is stuff coming to the forefront. And then we get the honor and we get the privilege of walking through those things together. Hmm. Yeah. Which is so much more purifying, but it's hard. So we've been talking for nearly an hour. And you've mentioned your website once, which I'll give you the opportunity here to, to share a little bit more about what people can find there. But you know, the, the end of the day, I think our listeners probably would like to know how do they get involved and learn more about what you're doing. So I'll give yeah. both either of you time to sort of share where do they start? And then what does it even look like to get involved? Yeah, We should say we don't just work with pastors. The pastor to pioneer thing is a a recent development, and it is something that Neil and I are spending some time on with another colleague in particular, but we've also got some coaches who volunteer to work with pastors. 
So that project is, again, called Pastor to Pioneer. So it's pastortopioneer.com. And actually, you just go on the website and there's a contact form that you can fill out and one of us would get back in touch with you. If you are a ministry leader in particular, that's kind of the best way to be in touch with us. And take a look at the videos that we've put on there because it explains what we're about and why we're doing this and what people can expect. But anybody who's listening to this, if you're struck by what we're saying, would like to engage in a conversation, even if you're not a ministry leader, if you're just an ordinary person and would like to receive training to bat these ideas around, feel free to get in touch with us. And you can get in touch with us directly. So Neil and I actually both work with an organization called Big Life, all one word, B-I-G-L-I-F-E. So my email address is m.schneider at big.life. And Neil, you want to say what yours is? Yeah, mine's just n.karsten, K-A-R-S-T-E-N, at big.life. Yeah, so in my last name is S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R. Mm-hmm. So feel free to reach out to us directly, regardless of who you are. But if you're a ministry leader, a pastor, I encourage you to take a look at the website and, and reach out to us through the contact form on the website. Guys, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, talking about what you're doing. It's really amazing what the Lord is doing in your ministry and in your way of blessing pastors and other ministry leaders. So appreciate you uh, sharing what you have. Yeah, this has been fun, Doug. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.